Hello pod pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I am your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. It's too warm to waffle so I'm just going to cut to the chase. I am thrilled to say that my guest this week is Jessica Kiang. Jessica is an international critic for Variety covering all the major European and Asian festivals. She also writes for Sight and Sound, BBC Culture, The New York Times and The Playlist where she also spent five years as features editor. She also regularly features on the Film Comment podcast, which if you like film and discussion, and well, why would you be here otherwise, I highly recommend. Jessica mentions some of the pieces of writing of which she is proudest in the interview, including her New York Times review of Christopher Nolan's Tenet and her essay for the Criterion release of David Cronenberg's Crash, which I urge you to check out. But there are very few and perhaps none of her reviews where I haven't marvelled at her perceptiveness and agility. Uh, There is a line towards the end of her sight and sound review of The Worst Person in the World where I actually stopped and clapped when I read it. Which is all to say, this was a rather joyous occasion to be able to sit down with Jessica and probe her writing process and how she configures her reviews and what she keeps in mind when writing them. We talk about how she transitioned from a career in advertising to writing about film full-time, her tips for aspiring film critics, managing relationships with editors, and other writers she looks to for inspiration. I was really honoured to have Jessica as a guest, and I don't think our conversation disappoints. This is episode 113 of Best Girl Grip. And that first question is whether or not you went to university, and if you did, what you studied there. Uh, Yes, I did go to university and I studied film. So this suggests an extraordinarily boring trajectory for this uh, for this podcast. Um, But actually, there there was quite a long diversion in the middle where I wasn't um, doing it working in in film at all. But uh, yes, I went to the University of East Anglia in, in Norwich in England and I studied film and American studies. Uh, mainly because in Dublin, where I grew, where I was born and grew up, there at the time there certainly weren't very many degree film courses, BA film courses, and I I really I I mean I didn't have any particular illusions that it was going to be something that would fling open all of the doors um, to massive riches and uh, and an incredible career um, afterwards. It was really just the only thing I could think of that wouldn't bore me intensely to study for four years. So. So that's why I ended up going there. And also then because they had this uh, year away in uh, in America as part of the, the degree. And at the time as well, I was probably still thinking that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And that because there were so few uh, film courses at the time um, that had a practical element to them at all, um, I knew that I was probably going to be able to get a little bit of hand, more hands-on experience if I had that year in, in the US. And thus it duly proved because I did my year away in the University of California in Santa Barbara and there got to make my um, st- terrible student films, which obviously have had the completely uh, desired effect because I am now a hugely famous, world-famous director with multiple uh, incredibly beloved <laughs> and critically acclaimed masterpieces under my belt. <laughs> Where did that desire to be a director or filmmaker come from? Like, was it, you know, a young age that you were sort of watching films and, and making that link between, okay, someone's thought this up and made this? Yeah, I mean, I think from a, I, I, I am one of those uh, really sort of dorky youngsters who was watching Lawrence of Arabia at five instead of going to the kitchen for Christmas dinner. And um, I've always I was always just fascinated by movies. I always um, I found them not just an escape, but also, uh, you know, a portal into into uh other worlds and into other lives that I was never going to possibly be able to live myself. And 
Um, and so from an early age, I was I loved film, but I didn't know. I mean, obviously, when you're young, you don't necessarily know what a director does or a screenwriter does or a cinematographer does. And so I think I probably first of all thought like I was going to be an actor or something, which thank God that that got knocked out of me pretty quickly. I'm a truly dreadful actress. I'm actually appalling. And so uh, so, yes, then, you know, when I got a little older and I started reading you know, publications about it. I started to understand that there was this job called director and it certainly seemed to be the most glamorous and the most uh, creative uh, role that you could have uh, in, in in movies. And then fairly soon, though, I think it emerged as well that um, I, my my actual uh, talents probably mostly lie in, in the writing area. So I was always going to be doing something to do with writing as well. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the directing thing was really just because it was the most visible behind the behind the scenes um uh, role that that I, I knew of at that point mm-hmm. um and it it's I mean it's probably still something that I still kind of cherish a, a, a notion that I might end up doing at some point in the future but very very far in the future I think and you mentioned a diversion and I'm wondering what form that took at what point did the the reality of directing kind of set in and you thought actually maybe I need to do something else to make a living first <laughs> well I mean I did I, I I had like honestly maybe the best time of my life directing my short films my direct my student films in 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 America that time I really do enjoy the the experience of being on sets and and um it's a complete but it's a completely different uh skill set to the one that sort of I naturally probably gravitate towards, which is more solitary, is less, um, it's kind of less demanding on my social skills. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, so I think I really, it wasn't, there wasn't any real moment at which I was like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to be a director. There go my dashed dreams. I, again, I didn't really see that, that degree and, and my uh, time at university as a sort of a vocational career-based profession-based thing it was really just to have the experience of going to college and to be able to do a bunch to watch a bunch of movies that I wasn't going to get bored with so that was really the main the main impetus behind it I don't think I ever thought that it was going to directly lead into a career in directing or screenwriting or any particular aspect of filmmaking Um, it was just still all very hazy back then and I was having such a tremendously nice time so I actually just I left university and uh, accidentally fell into a job in advertising which then became my career uh, for about 10 years and it was leaving advertising at uh, around 30 or so uh, in my early 30s that 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 was when I actually sort of started to gravitate back towards film and and specifically into into film criticism. Mm. And were you doing like copywriting in? Yes, I was a creative copywriter. You were Peggy Olson. Yes, I was Peggy Olson. I actually couldn't watch that much of Mad Men because it felt like it, it it was really quite accurate. I mean, apart from all the sex and the and the cool <laughs> drinking and the great and the great uh, the great uh, outfits, um, it was uh, it was really quite. Uh, accurate to to a lot of my experiences as a as a copywriter in advertising back in the day it was definitely yeah like a creative writing element that was sort of percolating away and I'm wondering when film criticism revealed itself to you was something that you might like to do and that yeah you might want to kind of leave advertising to pursue yeah, I mean, actually, it really came because I was um, I, I, I ejected myself from advertising at the at basically the exact moment that I realized that advertising had suddenly become my career. And again, rather than being this kind of malarkey that I had been doing to pass my 20s, this ridiculously overpaid malarkey that I was doing to to pass my 20s and 
as soon as it started getting a little bit serious and I started to get kind of caught up in the politics of it a little bit and and uh, just suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm going to be an, a person who's an a advertising copywriter. Like that's my, that's going to be me forever. Um, it was a truly terrifying moment and really a very eye-opening moment. So uh, I, I quit basically the, the day that I had that revelation. Um, and uh, and uh, I had saved up enough money by that stage to be able to travel. And I was uh, with my boyfriend at the time. We moved and we lived in New York for a little while. And we went down to Santiago de Chile and lived there, lived in Ecuador for a while, and then moved across to Southeast Asia. And we lived in um, Thailand and in uh, Malaysia for quite a while. And so that, because travel, as I, as I mentioned, is my other big passion. And, and so during that period of time, when I was kind of just having a great time and when we were having like a lovely time and, and sort of getting a little bit of uh, money in from freelance advertising gigs that I was still doing over the Internet. But during that period of time, I actually had time on my hands. And so I had the, the incredible luxury of being able to start to read a little bit of of various blogs and various uh, publications and realizing that you know the film thing had never gone away i had always been going to the the cinema with ridiculous regularity and the the fact that i had been a writer already for so long th- these two things sort of just seemed to converge quite easily and i don't know if this like aligns with some of the the blogs and the publications you were reading at that time but you've written for kind of a wealth of i would say the best places that publish film writing to tick a few of them off the list the playlist variety sight and sound new york times how do you start reaching out to those people or the editors that work at those publications and say hi look at me i'm here to write reviews for you you know how do you make yourself known as someone that can and is willing to do that that is a really good question, and it's one that I'm often asked, and I can never give a satisfying answer because I know that that uh, younger emerging critics and writers really hope that there's some sort of you know magic key that I can give them that will open that door just a crack that they can get their foot in, and there really isn't. And the only thing that I can say is that I, I had this extraordinarily charmed path into it myself, mm-hmm. um, and uh, the, the sort of that hi, I'm Jessica, and I'd like to write about movies for you thing I've never actually had to do, really. The only time I ever did that was when I was such a hobbyist that it was just, um, I was offering my services for nothing necessarily, and it was to the playlist specifically. And the the story of that is kind of ridiculous. It was, uh, it wasn't even a blog that I was actually reading very much at the time it was my boyfriend at the time who was reading it and I think we were living in Chile and that was when he was like he pointed out that you know I think you'd really like the the tone of voice of this blog which was at the time just on blogspot and it was really just run by a couple of people and uh on, on the very day that I first went to look at the playlist they had a big sort of call for contributors up and with I think probably quite typically feminine uh, false modesty or whatever, I, I immediately thought, oh, my God, even though I had just had a 10 year career, award winning career as an advertising copywriter, I was immediately like, oh, my God, well, I couldn't I couldn't possibly write a review. Um, so I actually volunteered my services as a copy editor, which um, is something that if, if anybody wants to try and get a, a backdoor way into into uh, any sort of blog, they are so unbelievably grateful for anybody who is willing to 
to copy edit and to learn how to build posts and things like that, that it can be a, a very good stealth move. It wasn't a, a plan on my on my part, but that was kind of how it happened. So I volunteered as, as that and very quickly start realized that actually I, had, I was being ridiculous with the idea that I wasn't going to be able to write these things that I was then editing. Some of the stuff I was editing was pretty terrible. Um, and so... Uh, then uh, and then, but but by that stage, I had I had a really good relationship with the editor there, with Rodrigo, who is still a really good friend of mine. And so, pretty soon after that, he started sending me to uh, my first film festivals, where I started writing some reviews. Um, and so, even rather before, you know, this was when it was just a blog and it was all unpaid, and there, there, nobody was getting a, a salary out of it. But there was some uh, kind of payment in kind, I suppose, because I got to go to my first film festivals that way and learn a little bit about how the festival ecosystem worked through that, um, write my first reviews, cut my teeth as a reviewer. And then when the playlist was uh, became part of the IndieWire network for, for a time there, by that stage, I was already kind of in there with them and they were already my, my close friends. And so um, I then I, be, I became features editor there for five years. Um, and that was an actual paid position. And uh, those were those were great days, um, incredibly, incredibly overworked days. And uh, I think um, I'm, most of the overwork came from my own my own enthusiasm and my own work ethic, I suppose. But um, yes, it was, they were fantastic times, but it, and, and that, and everything, everything else that has come thereafter has actually come to me as a result of those things. Very, I, I think firstly, the, and the most important uh, turning point was Variety. So when Variety first contacted me and asked, said, just, we like the way you write, would you like to come and write for us? And I was obviously delighted to do so. And then once you write for some, for an outlet as, as big and as well-respected as Variety, then other things do tend to follow you just get a much higher profile immediately you've said a lot of really interesting things that I kind of want to pin um obviously the the festival ecosystem will come back to and certainly payment will come back to but you mentioned early on about your tone of voice being the right fit for the playlist and I'd love to kind of get a sense of when you sort of knew what your tone of voice because it's such a nebulous thing like how do you know how you write was it just through kind of practice was someone else telling you you know you've got this kind of a tone to you and how important do you think it is to find outlets and to pitch to outlets where that tone of voice aligns to kind of the kind of things that they publish yeah that's that's a really good question and I, I think for any for any writer and I think probably what I should say up front is that I, I'm maybe like the worst critic he could be talking to about all of this stuff because I I don't I, I don't actually think I do consider myself primarily a film critic. Primarily I consider myself a writer mm-hmm. and I'm a writer who works in film criticism at the moment. And uh I mean and I do obviously love cinema. So the writing part of it, the tone of voice part of it has always kind of existed for me. This is the way that I know how to write and um, and I think also the fact that I came to film criticism having already had a career somewhere else. And I think I think this is a, a greatly uh, sort of underrated and overlooked thing. So I know so many of my peers who are, you know, ten, basically 10 years younger than me or even, you know, less than 10 years younger than me, but who have actually had much longer careers in film criticism than I have. And I think in my case, anyway, the fact that I did something else before um, has sort of enriched how much I appreciate being able to do this now. So my tone of voice or certainly the way that I approach it and and because I was working for the playlist specifically, um, I think was very much, as a film critic, it was very much forged in those years. There was, the playlist was a a truly wonderful place at that time. Um, It's still great, but um, truly wonderful then just for for how wide-ranging and omnivorous the cinematic tastes were there. 
and also for the irreverence of their approach, which I, I think is also something that I very much responded to. If I had felt, if I had thought that at the very beginning of writing for anybody, I was going to be writing for something that had a slightly more stuffy or slightly more maybe just actually was that was a bigger outlet then I would have felt somewhat uh, constrained but I never felt that with the playlist and I still love on occasion to write for them um, because I, I I get this they, they let me do things that probably um, most other places wouldn't let me do mm-hmm. um, so yeah so that the how you develop your tone of voice is just is really a, an endless question that you could ask of any writer I think and I, I think it's just at some point, having to understand that you do have uh, your own tone of voice and that, that that is actually your most valuable currency. I think once you realize that writing, the, the actual craft of writing is what you're being paid for and not to have an opinion. Um, I think that's something that people get uh, kind of confused by early on, especially where it's just like, oh, fantastic. I can just watch a load of movies and then, you know, do basically what I do with my friends and talk about talk about what I thought of the films. Really, opinions truly are like assholes. Everybody has them. And I find the least interesting part of of any of any review actually is is whether or not the reviewer thinks it's good I I think the most tell me what you how the movie made you feel tell me what it made you think of tell me the uh, illusions that it made you know that kind of thing is far more interesting to me and you know certainly if you can tell me that eloquently then then whether or not you thought something was good because I don't trust anybody else's opinion except my own Mm. we've kind of drifted into the process kind of element of writing and I I definitely want to get your take on just how you sit down and write a review which seems like a basic question but you've mentioned irreverence and the thing that always strikes me about your writing is is well the wit and how alive the film is and how playful it is I'm always just honestly like bowled over by your writing and I would just love to know like are you coming and sitting down and reciting those questions to yourself you know thinking about how it made you feel and and you know how it was doing that or is it coming quite organically and you're you're so used to the process now that it kind of just happens without much thought oh god I wish it was organic but also thank you for that incredible litany of compliments they're literally the nicest things you could have said so uh, I'm I'm really uh, happy to hear that it doesn't I would love to be able to say that it gets easier or you get faster or you get better I, I don't think that any of those things are true I think every single time is is a, an uphill struggle and I think mostly it's now just become I I know myself very well and I, I um and actually the biggest challenge I find at the moment and this is having done this for 10 years now is less actually about the the individual review um or the individual film even and more about me and and it's very solipsistic actually and it's more about making sure that as much as I really do want to spend as much of my time and as much of my effort uplifting this art form that I believe is the greatest storytelling medium that humankind has ever developed, I also have to acknowledge that this is my life and it is passing and this is my time and and it is important to me now, it has become important to me now to enjoy the process of writing a review, even if it's a review of a film I didn't particularly like, but to enjoy that process and to respect my own time um, and to respect the fact that this is a, a segment of my life that I'm giving over to this thing. And so once once that becomes clear to you, which I think is a factor of age and possibly a factor of we all have lived, having lived through the pandemic and all the rest of it. But when you notice the fact that this is time and it's passing and it's your time, then I think you become more 
in a way more confident that the things that you actually do end up writing are good enough to have been written because they were good enough to to keep you your own mind entertained at the time and also you are always your own harshest critic and so I think a lot of the times the stuff that I write uh, has gone through so many levels of self-editing that I think that anything that's put, that remains after that pretty grueling and, and masochistic process is probably, you know, certainly good enough to be read by other people. But that said, it's still it's still a case by case basis. And sometimes I find it flows really easily. I don't have any sort of particular set way. I have particular things that I, I fixate on, probably to my detriment. Um, I really fixate on my first lines and my last lines. So everything in between is kind of shy. But <laughs> the first lines and the last lines of my reviews are the ones that I that I really uh, fixate on. And I also sometimes then are the things that block me because I, I get this, this sort of overwhelming feeling that my first line is crap. And so therefore I, I can't go on. And, and if I were to be giving advice to people, it's the advice that I always give when I go on critics workshops and things, which is advice that I absolutely cannot follow myself, which is just write, like just write it down. And you, you know, go away. If you have the luxury of being able to go away for a couple of hours and come back to it, you will find that even possibly your, your, um, anguished over first line and your anguish over last line are actually there somewhere in the stuff that you've read. They might not be in those positions, but they're already there. So that ability, I wish I had it more. And it's something I would totally encourage anybody else to, who is like starting off in this to, to, to encourage in themselves, just, just write the damn words and, you know, and shape and edit and everything afterwards. Um, and that's of course, if you have the luxury of doing that, if you don't have a very tight turnaround or a very tight deadline. And are you someone that takes notes while you're watching a film in the cinema? Because it strikes me as well that you have a very kind of visual way of writing and often excavating new like ways of describing things and, and, and language. Is that Are they things that are striking you in a cinema and you're kind of jotting them down? Or again, that's coming with the editing process and thinking there's there's a sharper way of getting to what I'm talking about here. I mean, it's it's a little from column A and a little from column B. I do take notes during the during the film, but they are completely and utterly illegible. <laughs> I don't, I'm absolutely militantly against any kind of lighting in a cinema, pen lights or any of those things. So it is mostly uh, I have the I have books and books and books that for some reason I hang on to like I'm ever going to refer to them again of scribbled notes where where you know presumably about you know 500 words are overwritten on exactly the same line and the entire rest of the page is is blank and it's completely illegible to me I do think that there is something to be said for for write the, the process of writing something down that it lodges then in your head on the very rare occasion I've thought of a hilarious joke that I'm going to end up putting into my review but mostly that's when the film is bad and I'm I'm already halfway uh, to to composing the review in my head just because I want stuff I want to take the piss out of um, but that doesn't uh, but sadly doesn't happen as often as I would like because writing really really negative reviews is of course incredibly fun as is writing incredibly positive reviews but the vast majority of the time you're going to be writing something that's about something that is somewhere in the middle of those two things for the for that thing and that's when the when process and stuff kicks in and so that's when yes I quite dutifully take certain notes um the hot tips that I have started to share with uh with students and with uh, aspiring critics are are to note down the very first scene just like 
you know, sea, man, uh, looks out, boat, or whatever it is that happens in the very first scene, and then also the very last scene, like really right down the plonkiest thing you can that you can imagine, like he dies, or you know, um, dog is sad, or something at the end, because you don't I never think while I'm watching a film I I always think well I'm going to remember all of this of course but certainly in festival environments when you're sometimes watching four or five films a day um, and you're going to have to come back to these notes as scribbled and illegible as they are some days later or some weeks later sometimes to try and recreate and recapture the memory of watching that film you will be surprised at how basic the stuff is that you have forgotten already like you will literally have forgotten who dies or um, what the relationship between two of the main characters or something like that. So write down these incredibly plonky things that you're never probably going to need to, to look at again. But again, the process of writing them down will kind of solidify them somewhere in your mind. And then after that, it's just, yeah, mostly ignoring that notebook of, 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 uh, of scribbles and doing your best to, to carve out the time and the sort of mind space to it's it's a, again a lovely thing that you said about my writing but that is something that I try to do I try to remember more necessarily more than more than what I think about the film having you know pondered it in the days since I try to uh, at least for parts of the reviews um to remember exactly how I felt how the film was making me feel uh, while I was watching it. I think that the fresh experience of the film is something that is important to capture in a review and is in, and is is also one of the ways that you can put your own individual stamp on this review because it, it will be different for everybody. I'm going to try and combine two kind of thoughts here. And the first is what you were saying earlier about with age and experience, thinking about how valuable it is to you now to enjoy the process of writing the review. But then also within the festival environment, you know, you've, you've you go to a lot of festivals, Cannes, Berlin, obviously the conditions are incredibly hectic. As you referred to, you're seeing maybe four or five films a day. You might be writing for multiple publications and have multiple deadlines. How are you creating the conditions for yourself in those environments to both hit your deadlines, but also to enjoy you know, the fact that you're in this wonderful city, seeing all these wonderful films and you get to write reviews? I mean that's that's the that's the six thousand million dollar question. I don't know. I wish I wish I I wish I knew how to operate that balance well, or and I wish I knew how I have managed to do it, or I wish I could art- articulate how I have managed to do it in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I find myself I am getting slower. So actually, the short answer to your question is I just I just miss deadlines now, which I never used to. Um, I used to be unbelievably assiduous in, in meeting deadlines, and now I kind of I quite quite like the whistling sound they make as they whistle past my ears. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, you can't do that all the time, and you can only do it with certain editors who are very forgiving of that kind of thing. And 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 it's also, I think, uh, again, after the after the pandemic, everybody does seem to be giving themselves slightly a, a little bit more of a break on on those things and recognizing that people have kind of other things in their lives, and, and as do the editors as well. So. Sometimes, it, you know, it can be very frustrating to really kill yourself for a deadline and then your piece doesn't actually go up for four or five days after that anyway. So you're like, really? I didn't actually have to, to sweat that much. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, still, um, at certainly at major festivals like Cannes, which I have just been to, or Venice or Berlin for me, which are the three big ones here in Europe that I go to, those uh, deadlines are important, even if they're just there to make me feel guilty when I miss them but also that it, there is it is a slightly different uh 
a set of skills, I suppose, that you use to write a festival review and to turn around a, a festival review than there is for anything else. Um, and it's if there's one thing that I have got better at, I suppose, it's at it's at not it's at actually just realizing that it's the same thing that hopefully trying to get to where I would have got to anyway but just do, having to do that a little bit faster because every now and then we all have periods of pressure in our in whatever job we're doing and it's just recognizing that sometimes whether it means that you have to sort of try and clear your decks a little bit before something like can and make sure you have time afterwards as well but that's just during that period you are actually going to be operating on very little sleep um, but you and you have to kind of be on. Um, but when, if you can do that and if you can even just do it for a short period of time, like for a week or two weeks at a time, then I think that, you know, it's it's oftentimes the stuff that I write in in um, in festivals ends up being some of what I think is my best writing. And I don't know how that happens because sometimes because obviously you know I am a terrible procrastinator I am I have truly the soul of a writer I'm you know, an alcoholic and I'm a complete procrastinator so I will always ask if somebody asks me if somebody commissions me to do something I will always ask for more time and more time oh could we push that deadline out by another week yeah and I genuinely don't know why I do that because it doesn't seem to actually impact on the quality of the writing at all so yeah I I I don't know I I try to uh, make sure that now now especially getting older getting slower and not giving quite as much of a shit as well um has been uh, a nice process because at least now I understand again I understand myself well I understand my own flaws um pretty well mm-hmm. and I know that there are times when I just can put them to one side and just say oh cop on to yourself and get this thing fucking done and that other times I will totally indulge them and totally indulge myself uh, but but I, I I hope that I have I kind of have a, a pretty good handle on when it is appropriate to do one or the other and a key relationship in kind of missing deadlines as well as obviously the relationship you have with the editor how do you go about navigating that is it important to you to kind of establish some level of friendship as well as professionalism and also how do you deal with the editing process you know if they're making cuts is that something that you've learned that you can push back on or is that kind of as soon as you file the piece it's sort of in their hands and you kind of don't have much say in what gets published oh no everything I write is perfect so no <laughs> no, I have I have genuinely been very blessed with with editors. In fact, I think well blessed blessed and and slightly cursed actually by by the absence of editing. I think one of the the big problems at the moment, and I think anybody who works in this line of work will will tell you the same, is that there aren't enough editors. We don't get enough oversight. Um, when I write for um, uh, an outlet like the New York Times, it's an incredibly beautiful, lovely safe feeling that I have because I know everything goes through at least three editors before it will see print and while you know and and oftentimes they don't actually make that you know they really don't make that that many uh, like really heinous cuts I think I've got to the stage where I'm pretty good at, at turning in fairly clean copy that is going to pretty much resemble what the final thing is on the page I, and I read enough to know what a certain publication's tone of voice is and to know that certain things just don't fly with certain publications. There's a type of a way that I, I will slightly, you know, moderate my language and moderate my grammar even for when I'm writing for Variety as opposed to when I'm writing for the playlist or as opposed to when I'm writing for The Times or whoever it is, or for Sight and Sound. And so, so you, you, you know, you, you, 
you get better at, at just knowing what the, the tone of voice of the individual publication is. And part of that does come from your relationship with the editor. I wouldn't say it's necessary to, to become pally with any of your editors. This is a professional relationship and we all have enough friends. Um, so, so, but it is, it is very nice to have a, a collegial relationship with them and, and also to, to just to know a little bit that they are humans just like you are. And sometimes things will go wrong and to be able to, and sometimes they will make, and, and there ha, there may be occasions where they might make an edit, which is incorrect or which really does give a misleading cast to what you have written. And in those cases, absolutely push back. And if you can, if you do already have a pre-existing relationship with that editor, it's that much easier to be able to say, oh, no, that's, that's not what I meant. Um, and of course, we can rephrase and of course whatever the issue was with the first with the with the sentence in the first place that made you want to change it we, we, we will change but not to this specifically that's that's a much easier conversation to have if you are on friendly terms with your with your editors but I mean mostly I, I think that that anybody who is an editor in in these in 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 almost all of the publications that I write for you know they're they're all on the side of the angels as well. Uh, a, a good editor is far far rarer than a good writer, to be honest, and because it's such a thankless task and it's behind the scenes, and oftentimes you don't see the genuinely heroic work some of them do in making us sound making us sound much much smarter than we actually are. Yeah, I would just say if you find yourself becoming friendly with an editor, cherish that relationship and do try and keep in mind that no matter how annoyed you may get about. Um, somebody changing your perfect prose there is no one is doing that to to try and you know do you down or to try and uh, do you dirty in any way and actually maybe you ought to take a step back and look at yourself if you're really having that kind of reaction unless there and of course there are some bad editors I guess I just mm-hmm. haven't worked with any of them I've been lucky enough to not have to work with any of them and given that you had this regular role as a features editor at the playlist I'm wondering what prompted the transition to being a freelance writer you know why did you decide that maybe that suited you better or was it a decision that was made for you? I, I mean, but even when I was featured editor, that was that was a, a contract position. So it was a paid position, but it was, you know, it was, I, I was commissioned to do a, I was commissioned for I think I think it was like two two thousand US dollars a month, I think. Um and but I did write like four or five sometimes uh features per week um for that. And often they were because I'm a notorious overwriter, they were they were you know thousands and thousands and thousands of words long and lots of long lists and and uh, you know career retrospectives and things that that required an enormous amount of of time and effort and sometimes corralling of other writers as well then to to bring them in so so it wasn't it didn't actually ever feel to me like I was like I was sort of in a salaried position and also because I was working over the internet the whole time I think one of the reasons that I ended up in that position specifically in in the playlist was because it was something that could trade on my pre-existing knowledge of classic film and old film and and you know um uh films that had been out for a while and wasn't reliant on me being in a hub because at the time I think I was probably living in Malaysia for most of that time or living in Asia or living all around the world but often in places that were not exactly hubs for for new releases or anything so I couldn't really have been on the reviews beat um it wouldn't have been practical at that time and it was also a little bit before it became standard for there to be screeners sent out to critics so so a lot of that stuff was retrospective stuff so that I could which I could do from anywhere so but it, it never felt to me like I like there was a huge difference 
between weirdly there wasn't a huge difference for me between writing a feature and writing a review again it comes back down to this sort of weird egotistical solipsistic thing that I have about like it's all writing and it's all me and I and I like that the fact that whether or not even if it was a you know an entire career retrospective of the films of Werner Herzog or a review of a Cannes movie that that those things that have that have my byline on them, I am I, I will stand behind any of them and they all become aspects of what I have written. And obviously, I mean, it's quite well known that writing and film writing in particular is quite a precarious career. Has that always been since you kind of moved into it, the mainstay of your income? Like, have you had to supplement it with kind of other work? I know maybe you do like um, workshops or, or talks, like that seems to be another kind of element of film writing. Has that been the case for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mostly workshops and, and talks you don't get any money for at all. So yes, um, it has been, it has, I mean, I've done Q&As and things, those you get paid for. But um, I think uh, I have been, it has been the mainstay of my income pretty much since I think, since I started as features editor uh, for the playlist. It was certainly the the lion's share of, of what I was making there. And, and also because I was living in parts of the world that were not necessarily particularly expensive to live in, the, the money seemed to go quite far. I was also, I was still until relatively recently, until about say six or seven years ago, quite regularly, relatively regularly uh, supplementing my income with the odd um, advertising gig, which I became increasingly, uh, they were just increasingly difficult to do. I just, I really can't bring myself to do them anymore. Um, uh, so it's good that I don't really have to. And then, yes, and then once once Variety, once I became a regular stringer for Variety, that also, then it, then it meant I didn't have to do anything outside of film um anymore to to supplement it and I I know that I'm I'm pretty rare in that regard and I'm very lucky in that regard I think there's lots and lots of people who were in their first or second job uh working in film criticism were are are still now today you know doing double jobbing working in something completely else or being waiters or or whatever it is that they have to do to make ends meet um, a lot of that, I think, as well, is to do with where you choose to live and where you and if you're lucky enough to be able to choose to live somewhere, which I am. I think it's pretty heinous for people living in London. I really don't know how some of the younger critics who live in London manage it at all. You know, just just the cost of living there is so sky high and this is not a well-paid job. So it's the, it's the other thing that kind of I, I in a weird way, I I think is it almost guarantees that people anybody who's who's doing this job for you know for a few years anyway they're they they're almost and it's, this goes for editors as well as writers they're they're almost certain to be doing it for the right reasons because we are none of us going to get famous and we're none of us going to get rich doing this and we're not even going to be very popular because mostly people hate critics so <laughs> so you really have to be doing it because you love the movies and you mentioned that getting the attention of Variety when they kind of asked you to come and write for them was a bit of a turning point for you. But I'm wondering if that is like a piece of writing that felt like a turning point for you in your career or something that you feel like speaks to who you are or who you want to be as a writer. Yeah, I mean, there's there are two, I suppose, that happened relatively recently. I think that my the review I wrote for Tenet, for Christopher Nolan's Tenet for the New York Times, which was by far the highest profile piece I had written for the New York Times by that stage, uh, at that point, that was a really fantastic experience for me. And even though it makes me feel a little bit like a war profiteer, because the only reason that I actually got to do that was because obviously it was during a pandemic. And for whatever reason, Christopher Nolan, bless him, decided that, or the, the, the Warner Brothers, bless them, decided that they wanted to release the film 
film in Europe before they released it in the States. And so with the New York Times wanting to have that that first review, the you know, the earliest review possible, um, and I had already written one small thing for them. They contacted, they asked me if I would do it. And of course I moved heaven and earth to uh, to make that happen. And I was really then pleased as well. It was also, it also came at a, a really nice time for me because Tenet is not like it's a Christ- big, big blockbuster Christopher Nolan movie. It's not the sort of thing that I think by that stage I was getting a reputation for for being able to review because most of the time when I'm writing for Variety, I am at festivals or I'm writing and Variety has many other writers and also has two chief critics who would tend to be the ones who are put on the big blockbuster films. And it's not because I don't watch the blockbuster films or it's not because I have some incredibly snooty opinion of what is cinema. It's actually just because I haven't been able to be you know part of a, a publication where I get to review those things or often in a city where those press screenings are happening. So the fact that I got to do this big blockbuster mainstream film uh, for a publication like the New York Times was a huge deal. And then I, I actually, I really, really enjoyed writing that review. And I think it's one of the better reviews that I've written. Um, and it, it, it did it did great business for me, I suppose, uh, for my brand, hashtag brand. Yeah, that was, that was one of them. And then the other one, which uh, I think was a real bucket list moment for me was when again out of the blue I got an email one day from Criterion who asked me to write the um, essay for the their uh, Criterion DVD release of uh, David Cronenberg's Crash and that essay uh, th- that was just one of the most blessed um, experiences of my writing life I, it was one of the very rare occasions where I firstly I couldn't believe that they, I don't I don't know how they knew that that I should be the person to write this, but it was an incredibly rare occasion where I absolutely did feel from the very beginning was like I don't know how these 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 amazingly intuitive people have known this about me, but I actually am the right person to write this essay. I am the exact right person to write this essay. This movie means so much to me. It meant so much to me in my development, not just as a film critic, but as a as a as a human being. Um, that I was just from the from the get-go I was like oh my god I'm actually in the right place at the right time and I'm writing for the right outlet as well they're they're a wonderful crew to write for and it was one of the rare occasions where throughout the writing process I was actually pretty convinced that what I was writing was good most of the time you're not most of the time I, I think it's awful but this time I was like no I think this is good I think I'm onto something here yeah and it, it has just still it is still my favorite and poss- probably the best thing I have ever written I think that speaks to the environment. As you say, they're great people to write for, but the way that they approach essays, they're so capacious and I feel like they're coming from the perspective of a film fan first, like a love of cinema, but they really allow you, I feel like, to reinterpret what the essay is, like fit for the purpose of that film. Yes, absolutely. And they really do. They encouraged me to, you know, not to try and do, which I think is also uh, an issue especially for younger writers to try and do this sort of one-size-fits-all vanilla all-encompassing piece that is going to somehow be simultaneously definitive and also just incredibly comprehensive and so very that will be you know both incredibly minute but also will be all things to all people and I think that's a terrible mistake and Criterion are very um, 
upfront and very uh, open about saying, no, we want you to write this thing because we like the way you write and we like your tone of voice and we think it will suit this project well. And so, and come to us as well, not, not just with this idea of like, okay, I am going to write Webster's Dictionary Defines. I'm, you know, that, that you're not going to write something like that, that come to us with an angle. And, and I think that's a wonderfully freeing thing to be given as a, as a, as a critic. This, uh, a remit not just to, Write, to write an appreciation of a film, for example, but to actually specifically get into one aspect of it that particularly resonates with you or something that particularly sticks with you or something that particularly annoys you about it, whatever it is, they're very free and open with this, like, you know, giving, making that remit as broad as possible, but then also asking you to narrow it down, asking you to, to be more single-minded and more straightforward than you probably would be otherwise, um, you know, given this, this incredible honor that you're, you're writing this definitive thing. And so that was, that was wonderful. And, they, and even from the very beginning, actually, they had sort of said that they wanted something that was also about it as a work of adaptation, about that that film specifically as a work of adaptation. And I'm also, I also do happen to be a big J.G. Ballard fan and I had read the book. And so I read the book again, obviously, and did all, all of that research, which didn't feel like research because it's just because it's just such fantastically rich material. And then out of that so many other things came. I mean, obviously, again, as an inveterate overwriter, I think that the essay had to be a thousand words. And I think I think I wrote about like 4,000. Like I was cutting it down from about 4,500. Yeah. So there's there's incredible amount of unreleased extras to my... To my <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Well, I mean, that's the thing is that that was my joke of like, of course, if you want to buy the beautiful printed version of this essay, it does come with a free uh, DVD of the movie um, attached to it. Uh, but uh, yeah, so so that was that was a really that was a, such a turning that I mean it wasn't even a turning point necessarily it was just really a, a, a bucket list I can't believe I've gotten to do this and I have written for uh, Criterion several times since and they have just always been an absolute pleasure to deal with. Mm, yeah to me they're the gold standard. You mentioned Ballard there and I'm wondering whether there are any other writers you know they can be film writers or you know more expansive than that that you return to or like to read when you're looking for creative inspiration to get those juices flowing. Yes, I mean, gosh, I mean, well, well, I, I, I do love to read. I don't do it as much as I used to, and um, I'm very worried. As I think everybody is about my attention span these days. But yes, I mean, uh, Ballard is is just somebody who I've always adored. I respond to that incredibly dystopian, often science fiction influenced uh, kind of world. As for for just prose stylists in general, um, I will actually often go back to the books of Michael Shabon, who I think is just a gorgeous gorgeous writer and he has that amazing knack of making his books read as easily as you know falling off a log but then they're so elegantly constructed and some of those sentences I will actually look up from the page and just be like damn you shape on <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean I think he's a, a, a great uh, inspiration on on that level as regards like classic film writers um i the one i go i go back to a lot it's it's funny because actually stick around as a female film critic for long enough and somebody is going to compare you to colleen kale at some point and you know negatively or positively which both have happened to me um and it's always kind of uh, hilarious when that happens uh, mainly because i think of all of the sort of classic um, canonized film critics i have probably have least in common with, with pauline kale um so of that era of 20th century uh, especially American film criticism I think the person I go to most is Manny Farber um, who I think is uh, just both a, a wonderful writer and also writes in a completely different register from me I find that often very helpful 
in unblocking myself when I when I do hit a wall is reading somebody or something that is entirely alien to my way of writing because it just dislodges something or jumpstarts something. And, and sometimes I will wholesale just rip something off because um, I mean I, I think I'm pretty clever about covering my tracks, but but uh, sometimes it is actually the, the most fertile way to to suddenly come with something is to, to get out of your own little patterns and your own little ruts. And imagine that you're somebody else writing this. Imagine how how would how would Manny Farber write this review? How would you know? Or, or of contemporary writers, I'm lucky enough to be very good friends with some great writers. With um, Guy Lodge of Variety, who is obviously a genius and is very one of my very close friends. Um, and then you know, Justin Chang of the LA Times is a fantastic, wonderful, witty, warm writer. Uh, Manolo Dargis at the New York Times is just, uh, for me, the gold standard of, of broadsheet uh, film criticism. And Stephanie Zakarik of Time magazine. There's, I mean, there's so many of them. And uh, and then there's also lots of people who I have got to know who have their areas of specialization, which I find very exciting as well. I, I think I don't, I don't really have one of those and I wish I kind of did. But, um, but you know, so somebody like Pam Hutchinson in, in the UK who specializes in silent and early cinema um, is always just a, a delight to read, especially because she will be writing about films that I probably have never heard of, certainly have never seen. And, you know, it, it, it always becomes such an ongoing revelation. You mentioned towards the beginning that you see yourself as a writer first that's currently, you know, a film critic. And I'm wondering what the kind of things are that maybe you'd like to write. Like, what is the plan for you, you know, in the future or the ambition? Kind of what areas of writing have you not forged into yet? I mean, I think it's always going to be something to do with film, not necessarily film criticism, but something And even even I mean, I do write fiction for myself occasionally well I, I I say that I haven't done it for absolutely freaking ages now so that's <laughs> basically a lie I just lied to you there um, yes my gift for fiction but I like to think of myself as as an occasional fiction writer but even then I think what I write is extraordinarily influenced by what I have watched and and by by films and I, I do there is a, a very porous line for me um which is probably a good thing considering my job between those particular arts between writing and between cinema so I think that they're, they can they scratch a very similar itch for me. So I mean, I have been uh, approached with the possibility of of writing a book, um, a nonfiction book. I haven't. I, they were again just terribly nice to me and sort of said, you know, would you like to write a book? Because we'll represent you if you do. And I was like, well, yeah, but it's more. I would like to be a person who has written a book. <laughs> so it was just suddenly like then then you know I hung up the call and it was suddenly like oh oh shit. So now I actually have to think of like a book to write and and, then write a book um, which seems like an enormously daunting thing but actually is something I would really like to do I would also maybe like to to work on um, I have a few opportunities to work on some screenwriting either to do some script consultancy and stuff and I've actually also just taken um, my first programming job which is a really exciting new area for me Um, part of the reason for that as well was that just with with uh, with a job that is bringing me some money from that uh, area it will hopefully mean I'll be able to cut down a little bit on on the day-to-day writing um, which then hopefully means that I will have some creative energy to put into one into some bigger project uh, at some point I don't know what any of that's going to be because at the moment the programming thing is which I sort of took on as this oh my god this is fantastic this is just going to be so much 
you know, delightful watching of movies and not having to write about them and but just being able to sort of pontificate and then put them put together a program, which is all true. But at the same time, there are actually quite a lot of things about this job that I don't know. And um, I, so I'm having to, to study up on those pretty quickly. But it's for the Belfast Film Festival, which is um, going to be in uh, November. And um, so everybody should come to that definitely because it's going to be amazing. And winding down, I would love to know if there's something you consider to be the biggest learning curve of your career or if you could give advice from older Jessica to younger Jessica, what would that mean? Hmm. Stop getting in your own way. I think mostly get out of your own head. It's not all about you. A lot, a lot of it is kind of general life advice like that. Um, and also, yeah, and and stop giving so much of a, of a damn what people think. It is, again, at the end of the day, as well as all of the things that are telling me to stop being so self-centered there is also the part of me that's like actually be more self-centered mm. you know, it is it is mostly about you and your relationship and and realize that that everything that you write that runs under your byline that is you know not to get up to arthur miller the crucible on you but that is your name and that is what you have out in the world and just make sure that things that run under your name are things that you can be proud of and things that you can be that you can stand behind i mean i don't and i don't think that's not even advice I would have to give myself because it, it's never really been something that was in question for me. Practical career advice. Listen, I have been winging it so far and I don't think that there's anything that I have actually, there's any solid piece of, of advice that I can I could possibly hand down to my younger self. Just be like, just make sure that you continually remind yourself that you're extraordinarily lucky to be able to continue to wing this lovely job. Finally, is there a film from a woman director that you'd like to recommend today or that you revisit often? Okay, so you you did forewarn me of this question. <laughs> uh, don't I mean it's your own fault. Don't ever ask a film critic for one film. I have three, and I think I'm amazingly cut down amazingly just to give you three. I was really torn actually within this question between whether or not I should try and highlight something classic and old that maybe hasn't been seen as much as it ought to have been or sort of alert people to something that's coming up that I've had the privilege of being able to see at one of these festivals that I've been to. And so I decided I was going to do both of those things. So the, the, the first one, the, the old film um, that I really love, love more people to check out is uh, Shirley Clark's Portrait of Jason, which is a 1967 film. Uh, Shirley Clark was a, was a, a, a New York-based filmmaker, contemporary of um, Jonas Mikas and, and that whole New York sort of underground movie making scene um, and Portrait of Jason is this incredible documentary which is uh, a portrait of Jason Holiday, who is a, a gay black hustler a sort of Times Square hustler to come aspiring cabaret singer just an incredible raconteur an enormous personality um, but the film itself is so the film itself is, is this incredible vortex of like race class sex issues, queer representation, all of those things. But it's also this really quite disquieting interrogation of documentary form and of actually embodies some quite questionable documentary ethics on, on Shirley Clark's part. And uh, it's it's just absolutely riveting. I think it's it's one of the richest texts ever and uh, I would love more people to to discover it and to argue about it over drinks later and then for the for a complete flip to a far more modern thing and something that not a lot of people will have had the the honour of seeing it, the privilege of seeing it. Um, I wanted to choose uh, Marie Kreutzer's Corsage, which just played in the Uncertain Regard sidebar in Cannes um, and stars Vicky Creeps, who won Best Actress in Uncertain Regard for her portrayal here. And it's just a it's just a, a wonderful deconstructed biopic, which I wanted to highlight as well, because biopics are 
traditionally my least favorite genre of film. And this is a fantastically anachronistic, kind of just lively, really spiky, weird, modern take on um, the life of Empress Elizabeth of Austria, also known as Sisi. Um, so it's wonderful. Uh, so definitely look out for that. So I had those two in mind and I was quite pleased with how they represented like <laughs> in fiction and you know I'm going to really have you know uh, uh, solidify my cinephile credentials there with just just those two but then I was actually thinking no actually there, there's another film that I should call out mainly because it's actually going to bring this lovely discussion to a to a nice close because it goes right back to the your very first question about about the university when I was leaving for university when I was leaving Dublin for university my sister who is uh, 13 years older than me um, I remember her saying oh god so you're going to come back at Christmas and you're just going to be all full of Eisenstein and Bergman pretensions. And, uh, and I, I, those obviously came later. But um, I, I, when I went to university then and went to my very first class and met my classmates for the first time, and the, the tutor put in a, a VHS and the film started to play and it was Susan Seidelman's Desperately Seeking Susan. So the very first film that I watched at university was Desperately Seeking Susan, a film I had already seen a million times. And <laughs> I even owned the novelization of at one point. So... Yeah, I, I mean, and I remember, I think I'm, I think I kind of remember, despite all of the tributaries that have happened since and the byways that have happened since, but I think I might remember, like, even then, when, when the first, when the credits come up for Desperately Seeking Susan, thinking, yeah, I could probably do this forever. Three brilliant eclectic picks. I didn't manage to catch Corsage in Cannes, so I'm very excited to see that. Oh, great. Thank you for the other mentions. I mean, thank you for this chat as well. An hour flew by. I feel like we only scratched the surface, um, but it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Jessica. Thank you. It's been lovely speaking to you too, Miguel. Thank you so much for the honour. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe, spread the good word, etc. I'm on Instagram at bestgirlgrip for pod-related news. In the meantime, have a great week. My keeping cool hack for you today is to pop an ice pack under your armpits. And with that, I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Bye.